Well, it's great to be with you this morning. And can I just say it's great to see your bodies? I know that sounds a little bit forward on the first day of uh, college. But the last time I was in this room teaching, the screens more than outnumbered the humans. So uh, it's great to have the fleshy stuff here as well. <clears throat> I wonder if you've had the opportunity this summer to reflect on the compassion of the Lord Jesus, especially in relation to his authority. Formerly, uh, and especially here at College Chapel, we're likely to give a quick yes, of course, many times, not the least because we all attend churches where the Christmas message stressed the compassion of Jesus coming into the world. But what about the experiential or personal side of the authority of Jesus in relation to his compassion? What about behind your social media profile, behind the God is good all the time picture that you either shared or retweeted again and again and again? In this private space, the authority of Jesus tends to be equally proportional to the circumstances in which we get what we want or what we think we need or at least what we think we deserve. Basically, I give Jesus authority over my life when he delivers the kind of life I want to live. That's his compassion. But if that's all there is to the authority of Jesus or the experience of it, I have to say, from my perspective, he hasn't done that great a job this summer. Ten days before Christmas, my brother-in-law died of cardiomyopathy. He was six months older than me. While we were making arrangements for his funeral, my eldest son came home from a concert with COVID, which put us all into lockdown again. Not only did we miss gathering with our family for the funeral, we also had to go without Christmas or any other chance to be together until the new year. And within that week, my wife and I celebrated the possibility of returning to the world with a bike ride in Centennial Park. On the way home, she was knocked off her bike by a random dog, which resulted in her being taken to hospital for painful reconstructive surgery and more isolation. In chapter 5, we read of John's Gospel. Please have that open in front of you. John chapter 5. We read of Jesus' first public healing miracle. Now, in this story, Jesus acts with God's authority to bring life because he is equally the word of God through whom God created all things. Yet we also see that his compassion is a function of his authority to act with and for the Father. He is not somehow granted authority because we perceive his acts to be compassionate. Another way of approaching this passage may well be to ask the simple question that St. Augustine did. Why did Jesus heal this man? That's what we'll wrestle with this morning. And now I'm going to speak about John 5 for the next three weeks. 
Uh, and while it is possible to overread uh, the passage, I want to just focus on the healing miracle today and ask the question, why did Jesus heal this man? Those of you who were with us uh, last year may recall that I've been reading John's Gospel in conversation with Augustine, and I'll be checking in with him from time to time over the next three weeks. But for now, uh, please join me uh, as I pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see the true glory of the Lord Jesus in his authority and rejoice in the grace that he shows us in compassion towards us. And we pray all this for your glory's sake. Amen. So John chapter 5, and we pick up John's larger story sometime after Jesus has healed the son of a certain royal official, an event that John refers to as the second sign of Jesus' glory. In this episode, though, Jesus wasn't even with the boy. He simply spoke to the boy's father. Chapter 5 begins after this, but in a very public setting of the Jerusalem temple. An unnamed Jewish feast has taken place and Jesus is back in Jerusalem and our attention is focused again on a specific location that will serve as the setting of this next episode of John's account, the next sign of Jesus' glory. Look at it there, chapter 5, verse 2. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethsaida in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame and paralysed. Now, as the story unfolds, it is in many respects common, so common that we might not notice the details. Jesus heals a man. That happens a lot in gospel stories. On closer inspection, though, we are faced with a number of possibly troubling issues. And as I mentioned, chiefly of those could be, why does Jesus heal this man at all? Now, as I mentioned, it is possible to overread such a passage. Uh, unfortunately, that seemed to be what happened to Augustine. He was very vexed by the prospect that the man's life of 38 years wasn't quite the godly number of 40. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 years. Elijah was in the desert for 40 years. What this man needed was a complete experience of life. So the Lord adds the two great gifts of loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbour as yourselves. And that gives the man 40. And so there we are. Now, it's easy, to, it's easy to mock, and we ought not to do that. But I do think we can do better, but we will have to wrestle with this passage together. So let's consider uh, what the Lord has to say to us today. Out of the crowd, Jesus chooses one individual, a man disabled for 38 years. The Christ sees him laying by a pool and somehow works out that the man has been here for this very long time. We aren't told how Jesus recognises this. And even if we might assume that there's some kind of divine insight at work, 
Perhaps the fellow simply looked particularly bedraggled in that nested way that uh, homeless people get when they've been squatting in some part of our city for an extended period of time. Of course, John may simply not have included the part of the dialogue where Jesus says, oh, hello, how long have you been here? <laughs> At least we know that the man's condition is going to require something significant. He's been in this predicament longer than most people live at this time. To die at 40 would have been not unusual at that time. And this man has been presumably in this predicament, in this place, for 38 years. Whatever the case, Jesus approaches the man with what feels a bit like a painfully obvious question. Look at it there in chapter 5, verse 6. Do you want to get well? Now, at the risk of being cheeky, what else is he going to say? No, no, it's fine. Don't worry. I've been making a very tidy living sitting here at the back of the temple where no people with money actually come, and I get to enjoy the fragrance of sheep being washed on their way to being slaughtered on the altar. I'll be fine, thank you. And the man's answer, though equally matter-of-fact, reeks with resignation. Look at it there in verse 7. Sir, the disabled man answered, I've no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Over and over and over again for 38 years. It seems that local legend has it that at certain times, angels disrupted the water and whomever was able to get into the pool and immerse themselves in angelic after-effects will be healed. But in 38 years, this poor wretch has never been able to make the magic work for him. He's not able to react fast enough, it would seem. But did you notice also, though, that there's little or no evidence in this man's response that he expects anything of Jesus. There's nothing that we might otherwise point to as faith or trust in Jesus the Messiah. Now, we aren't told why Jesus reacts to this sorrowful tale the way that he does. There's no, and on seeing him, the Lord loved him, or filled with compassion, the Lord reached out and touched him. In fact, Considering that this is the third sign of Jesus' glory, there's been very little by way of exploration of Jesus' experience or emotional engagement in any of the miracles. In chapter 2, his mother wanted him to do something about the lack of wine at a wedding reception. So in John chapter 2, verse 4, his response is, well, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? And in chapter 4, when a certain official from Herod's court asked Jesus to heal his sick son, the Messiah replied, John 4:48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So it's perhaps not surprising that Jesus' response to the disabled man is minimal and direct. Look at it there in verse 8. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. It's all very matter-of-fact, really, isn't it? 
Jesus, who has admitted to being the Messiah, simply speaks and his word, being far more powerful and therefore more authoritative than any angelic intervention, brings life to this man. Now, as readers, we know something that none of the characters know. The word of the Messiah is also the word through whom God the Father spoke creation into being. Or as it's described in chapter 1, verse 3, all things were created through the word and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. So now the word in flesh speaks his creative word and the disabled man is made whole. And yet we're left with another kind of uncomfortable question. One that relates his purposes in healing the man that I raised earlier. Does Jesus really know what he's doing here? He's plucked this man out of the crowd with his powerful word only to lead the poor wretch into breaking the Sabbath law. This poor fellow was out of the frying pan and into the fire. John chapter 5 verse 9, Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. At one level, the Jews are not wrong here. Since the days when Israel first met Yahweh at the foot of Sinai, the law has been quite explicit about labour on the Sabbath. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labour six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord has made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it to be holy. The seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh, who made the heavens and the earth. You must not do any work. None of you. Even the youngest child in a household knows this. So why is this man flagrantly ignoring what the rabbis have made so clear? Well, of course, strictly speaking, and let's face it, that's the way the Jews are rolling here. Strictly speaking, the man has not violated any statute related through Moses to Israel. This is more a rabbinic fine print infraction. And under examination, the paralytic, formerly known as that guy who used to live next to the pool for 38 years, he pleads ignorance. After all, it does seem unlikely that he would pass up the opportunity to be freed from the shackles of a lifetime of begging. What's going to happen in that scene? The Lord says, be healed, pick up your mat and walk. Really? Do you think that's wise? It's the Sabbath. Shouldn't you come back tomorrow? <laughs> no. His answer is simple. He says to the Jews, this guy, who, by the way, healed me from a lifetime of misery, he told me to pick up the mat and so I did. But notice again, though, that there's no acknowledgement of mercy. There's no question as to whether any kind of divine intervention has even taken place. 
The clip nature of John's account moves us straight to Jesus and the map carrier being reunited in the temple where the Christ confronts the man over his sin. See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. It's another curious interaction, isn't it? Does Jesus believe the man to have been disabled because of his sin? It's not how he talks later on when they discuss the uh, fate of the blind man. And what could this formerly disabled person do that would get him into more trouble? What's clear, though, is the man is an ingrate. There's still no word of thanks on his lips, let alone trust in Jesus as Messiah. In fact, just the opposite. The man goes to the Jews to inform them their identity of the Sabbath healer with the predictable outcome that now the Jews turn on Jesus for activities in breach of the Sabbath protocols laid down by the rabbis. It doesn't feel like a very happily ever after story, does it? To this point, the conflict between the Messiah and the Jews have been over his claims made about the temple, that he would destroy it and replace it with his own body in chapter 2. The only other interaction was a secret meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, which, while positive, served to radically distinguish the mission of the Messiah from the expectations of the temple rulers. It's not until we get to the end of this episode that we get a clue as to Jesus' intentions all along. The man reports Jesus to the authorities and they go on the attack. But Jesus' response actually ratchets up the whole encounter by an order of magnitude. As the Jews turn from simply contending against a lawbreaker to seeking to kill a blasphemer. Look at it there in verse 18 of chapter 5. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. How did this get out of hand so quickly? Sure, breaking the Sabbath is serious, but really? It all hangs on Jesus' stance against the Jews regarding works of any kind on the Sabbath. Jesus completely ignores the rabbinic hair splitting represented in the Jewish attacks on the man who was healed and Jesus himself. In fact, he doesn't even deny that he was working on the Sabbath. Look at it there in verse 17 of chapter 5. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working and I am working also. It seems that the rabbis were prepared to concede that despite what was written in Genesis 2, God continued to preserve the heavens and the earth that he had created. He was, in fact, above the law of Exodus 20. So when Jesus equates his works of giving life, especially on the Sabbath, he's making his work equal with God's and therefore equally above the law. And yet it is the fact that he refers to God as Father that brings everyone's blood to the boil. This is the first time that the Messiah has publicly done this, publicly referred to Yahweh as his Father. Previously and in private with a Samaritan woman and then later in private with Nicodemus, 
the Messiah has referred to God as his father. But now here in the temple precincts, Jesus equates his power, his work of power with God's. And to top it all off, it's supposed to be a reflection of his relationship to God. Now, both Moses and Elijah did what we might expect only God could do, whether it was changing war, uh, the weather in Moses' case or bringing the dead to life in the case of Elijah. No good Jew would deny that, but also neither would Moses or Elijah deny that they were merely instruments of Yahweh's saving works. But the psalmists expect the Messiah to call on God as Father. That's what we read in Psalm 89, verse 26. He will call to me, you are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And so now, Jesus, the Messiah, who not only does the works of the Father but does the Father's works as his specific mediator, he has the authority to call God Father. And that is the point of this miracle. Jesus has healed this man, this ungrateful, ignorant man. He has acted compassionately towards him because he has the authority to. Jesus performs this miracle to show his authority as the word of God who gives life to the world. All his acts reveal the authority of the Messiah who is the Lord. His acts are authoritative yet compassionate, as distinct from being so compassionate as to be authoritative. I think that's how our culture tends to view Jesus, if they pay any attention to him at all. He's so supremely compassionate that he's somehow worthy of some kind of authority. And that's such a loud message, I think. It's easy for us to get distracted, to forget that when Jesus acts in compassion, it's because he has the authority to do so, the authority of the one true God who made the heavens and the earth. In this episode, Jesus acts for the sake of his Father's glory, a glory that is focused on the exaltation of his Son. Father and Son are united in the one divine mission to save, we're told in John 3. The Father sending and the Son obeying. Yet there's only one mission to save the world, through the Son. Jesus' act of healing is a sign of his authority to save the world from darkness and death, an authority, as we shall come to see in detail in the rest of John 5, comes from the Father, for the Father, and reveals the Father. Jesus is not recognised as supremely compassionate and therefore authoritative. This man seems completely unmoved by what has been done for him and all too ready to distance himself from the one who came to save him. And I wonder sometimes if in our desire to convince one another or to convince ourselves that we forget that the authority with which Jesus acts is compassionate as a sign of his grace. He doesn't have to act towards us as he does. He comes only to glorify the Father and yet it is the way that he comes filled with compassion for the lost that he shows the grace 
of our Heavenly Father. Jesus is our Saviour because he is the Lord. He does not become the Lord because he saved us.